Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Following the death of George Floyd in May, protests across the nation have demanded police reform and an end to systemic racism in policing. Today we're going to talk about how we're doing with this in Utah. We're going to speak with Representative Sandra Hollins, Democrat from Salt Lake City, who serves on the Utah Legislature, and Darlene McDonald, Chairwoman of the Utah Black Roundtable and a member of the newly created Salt Lake City Commission for Racial Equity and Policing. We're going to discuss systemic racism, police reform on the city and state level and related topics. And uh, we bring in our guests, uh, Representative uh, Hollins. Uh, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Good, good, to, good to be with you. Uh, Darlene McDonald, thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I want to start with um, the death of uh, George Floyd. Of course, this is you know, captured on video, an excruciating video to watch. Um, and I'll start with Darlene McDonald on this. Do you? Uh, this seems to have been a, a catalyst of, of some kind. You know, depressing numbers of, of deaths of black men, black people, at the hands of police uh, over the years. Uh, why do you think this has seemed to be a, a catalyst? Um. You know, it, it, I, I will admit that it is still difficult to talk about um, the death of George Floyd in, in the video without feeling um, just pain within my gut. One of the reasons why I believe, this is my own personal opinion, that it was a catalyst. Is for for a number of reasons. One, we we watched the death of we watched the man die, right in front of us on national television, multiple times. There was no way to dispute what happened to Mr. Floyd, and on television, we watched a man die, and that was chilling. For for me, for for many people, and to hear him call out for his mother to ask for to be to to, to be let go to state to state a number of times that he could not breathe, and to hear his voice be unheard and his pleas go unanswered was chilling. And that's why I believe that it was a catalyst in the same way that Bloody Sunday was a catalyst in March of 1965, that these issues had been going on for a very long time. But until America really saw what was happening with their own eyes, that they were able to relate to the issue at hand and what has been said by so many people. Yeah, we just had the death of Representative Lewis, didn't we? Uh, uh, passing yes, there. we did. Yeah. Yes. Um, and that, I guess, similar. You you bring up similarities. I I, I think just you know, Bloody Sunday, just the <laughs> on national television, uh, you know, unarmed yeah. protesters being being beaten bloody that ha- did have an effect. It seemed on the country. It did. It did. It awakened a consciousness in America, even though that they had heard the protesters and they had seen. And I'm speaking of 1965. African Americans speak about the the racial injustices that were occurring, and and just trying to vote, African, just trying to register, not even even. 
trying to vote, trying to register African-Americans to vote, to be able to vote, they were having these difficulties. And until they saw that with their own eyes, that's when it awakened their Mm. consciousness. Representative Hollins, same question to you. Why do you think this is? It seems to be, it seems to be a catalyst. It seems to be. Uh, you look at the polls, that, that a big, a big shift in attitudes. Um, yeah. Why do you think this was the, the catalyst? Apparently, I think, you know, as um, Darlene has stated, this has been going on in our community for years. This is not anything new. These are issues that my daughters are are dealing with and have in their lifetime that I've had to deal with and have seen in my lifetime that my parents and their parents. So this has been going on for years and years and years. And I think when we talk about it, people can say, well, we don't know what's the facts and what's what's lying. Or... There's a lot of victim blaming going. Well, if you would have done this, if you would not have resisted arrest, if you you should have, should have, should have, there's a lot of blaming on the communities of color on what we should have done to stop ourselves from being killed. But when we saw George Floyd murdered, it was a visual. There was no, um, there was no what if. There was no justification. There was nobody who can justify saying that if he would have, then he wouldn't have had a, the, the, a knee on his neck for, what, eight, almost nine minutes. There's no way to, to justify that. And so I think the visual of it is what sparked a lot of people to say, okay, this is going on and something needs to happen and there needs to be a change. Uh, I'll start with uh, Representative Hollis this time with this question. So uh, I already made reference to this, uh, but it does say, I'm I'm quoting from Vox.com here, um, a change in public opinion. 76% of Americans now say racial discrimination in the U.S. is a big problem, up from 51% in 2015. Public support for Black Lives Matter movement increased almost as much in the past two weeks. The big movement, it seems, among among white people. Black people already know, know there's a problem. Among white people, what, what do you think? Why do you think this uh, shift now? I, I, again, I think it is because they they're seeing the visual. I think that 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 seeing what happened to Mr. Floyd. Um, I think people's eyes have now been opened, and they're starting to see more of what is happening in their communities. They're beginning to have that conversation um, with individuals um, such as myself um, and listening to my lived experiences. Um, and so they, they're seeing that. It, it, it cannot be denied now. It's on video. It cannot be denied. And so I think people now are starting to pay attention more to their communities, to their environments, um, to what's happening on their jobs, um, and 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 being more educated about it, and now and, and now there's this big shift that that's happening. Uh, Darling McDonald, does this give you hope? Do you, do you think this is going to be a lasting shift in opinion? Yes, <laughs> with a caveat. <laughs> with with a caveat. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Does it give me hope? Yes, it, it does. There are many people 
who are now paying attention in questioning, questioning their own biases, questioning the implicit biases, questioning the biases within policing. They are listening. They are open to learning, reading, discovering, and having conversations, and also wrestling with being uncomfortable maybe for the first time with what's going on and, and maybe even how their complicity may have contributed to it for so long. So we are, like as Representative Hollins has said, people have reached out to us and are willing to have conversations that they may not have been willing to have, I would say, maybe four or five years ago. Mm. They are willing to have those conversations. They are willing to look at the phrase Black Lives Matter and try to understand what does this mean? Does it mean this? Does it mean that? And there are still people who will resist that at all costs. But I, as you stated, the the numbers um, have a, of the approval rating of the movement is higher than what it was you know, a few years ago. So there are people who are looking within. So that gives me hope. But it also means that we cannot become complicit again, that this is our opportunity for change and to really make fundamental change within some of these institutions that have been that that have perpetuated a lot of the systemic racism since forever. Mm-hmm. We'll get to obviously get into police, uh, police reform here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Representative Hollins, you, you uh, talked earlier uh, about the fact that people are willing to listen to your lived experiences. Uh, and as uh, Darlene McDonald just made reference to, it's these are difficult conversations to have. Do you think people are more willing to have these conversations? I think they are. I think there are a lot of people now who are willing to um, have these conversations. Um, and it's very uncomfortable conversations. So I applaud those individuals who want to have those conversations. But I think for far too long um, in this state, we have shied away from having conversation around racism. Um, and because it is so uncomfortable. But I think we have to become comfortable. I heard someone say a while back, and I don't remember who it is, but they said we have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable now. Um, That's the only way we're going to make progress, and that's the only way we're going to move forward um, is to have those conversations and to understand um, each other's experiences and not to discredit anyone's experiences because it may not be your own. Um, and so, yes, I think we are willing to now look at it. We're willing to have those conversations. And, of course, I know there are some people out there that's not going to ever be on board. Um, they're, not going, they're not willing to have that conversation. Um, they're not there yet. Um, but I think for those of us who are willing to talk about it, to talk about racism, to start looking at dismantling racism, um, it's... It, and to to acknowledge that this country was built on it, 
um, I think until we start doing that, we, we can't move forward. Let's take a break. Uh, we'll come back. We'll have a second segment here with uh, our two guests uh, uh, on this important topic of uh, racism, systemic racism, police reform. We'll get into talking about that as well. Uh, we're talking with Representative Sandra, Sandra Hollins, Democrat from Salt Lake City, serves on the Utah legislature. Darling McDonald, who's chairwoman of the Utah Black Roundtable and member of the newly created Salt Lake City Commission for Racial Equity in Policing. And we'll have more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University Extension. With berries and fruit in season, jams, jellies, and spreads work well for preserving the harvest. For well-set fruit, closely follow the recipe and don't adjust the sugar amount. Information at canning.usu.edu. This is Craig Jessup, director of the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra inviting you to celebrate Christmas in July with the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra and Utah Public Radio. During this time when public performances are limited, UPR will broadcast two of AFC's Christmas concerts. Join us July 24th and July 31st at 1 p.m. and 7 p.m. for a special broadcast of the 2015 concert featuring Jenny Oaks Baker and Jenny Jordan Frogley and the 2016 concert featuring AFC's first performance with Gentry. Support for this special American Festival Chorus and Orchestra Christmas in July broadcast comes from Utah Humanities Cares funding and the National Endowment for the Arts. Listen July 24th and July 31st here or online at upr.org or through the free UPR mobile app. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about systemic racism, police reform on the city and state level. Uh, and we're talking with Representative Sandra Hollins, a Democrat from Salt Lake City, and Darlene McDonald, chairwoman of the Utah Black Roundtable and member of the newly created Salt Lake City Commission for Racial Equity uh, in Policing. You're welcome to join this conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com or email upraxcess at gmail.com with your question uh, or comment. I'll start with uh, Darlene McDonald on this one. Um, so um, I think Representative Hollins was, was mentioned dismantling racism before the break. Uh, Darlene McDonald, how do we, so there's systemic racism in general, then we'll get into talking about systemic racism in p- policing. Uh, that's a big project, dismantling racism. Uh, where, where to start? You start it the same way you start the 12 Steps program with Alcoholics Anonymous. Anonymous, you admit that there's a problem. <laughs> that is That has been, I think, in this country, the hardest thing for most people to actually admit is that we, we have a racism problem in this country. We have an anti-blackness problem in this country. And those two things are not the same thing. And, and until we admit that, and I, and I think people are coming around to admitting that. There was this false belief after the election of the first black president of the United States that we had entered a post-racial America. Many of us, did not feel that way and knew that that was going to prove false. And it did prove false because what we actually saw was a doubling down on the hold on to the white supremacy. And 
that led to, I believe, a lot of white anxiety, in, in my opinion, um, about losing that control and the hierarchy in what we are experiencing right now, especially with the person that currently occupies the White House, um, is holding on to that white supremacy idea. And there are people, as Sandra Hollins, I'm sorry, Representative Hollins, has stated, never going to be on board, never going to be on board. We, I've had friends that come to me and have just flat out said that they have heard from white friends said, point blank, that they will never accept a black person in the White House, ever. And we are experiencing that. So some people will never be on board. We have a racism problem in this country. But admitting that and then willing to dismantling that is where we go from here. Representative Hollins, uh, same question to you. So do you agree that the start, the starting point is to admit we have a problem? And then where do we go from there? Absolutely. And I agree with everything Darlene says. Um, but with that, I want to also add that we have to first acknowledge our past. We have to acknowledge that slavery did exist in this country, and we have to tell the truth about it. And we also have to teach it um, and not sugarcoat it. And I think part of that is part of the issue. We don't want to talk about our past and what led us to this point. Um, so I think that's, that's part of what needs to be done. But we also, as she said, we also need to acknowledge our own biases. We all need to acknowledge our own privilege. And... Um, moving forward in our everyday lives. Um, and, and, and that, and that's, I think that's going to be the biggest part of it. Let's uh, jump in to talk about systemic racism and policing and, uh, you know, what to do about that here in, in Utah. Um, and again, we're speaking with Representative Sandra Hollins and with Darlene McDonald, who is a member of the newly created Salt Lake City Commission for Racial Equity uh, in, in Policing. Uh, let me let me start there with uh, Darlene McDonald. Um, uh, tell me a bit about this this new commission, Salt Lake City Commission for Racial Equity and Policing. It's it's new, just as you said, and we have we have a difficult task ahead of us, as well as an important task ahead of us. Uh, we haven't gotten started yet with the actual work; it is still in the formation stage. And once we get started with the actual work, we will open it up to the public. So I don't have anything to report about we're working on XYZ because we're not there yet. We have brought on additional members of the commission that are from various uh, backgrounds and also um, people of color to join us and be a part of this conversation and part of providing reform and solutions and suggestions. You still have the six core members, but we have brought on additional members as well. And we had our first meeting with the additional members on yesterday. I can say that is a wonderful group of people who are committed to doing the work, committed to seeing reform, and also humbled by the whole process as well. 
we we recognize that one of the hardest parts of this might not necessarily be presenting and creating the ideas of reform, the proposals of the reform. Probably the most difficult task at hand will be to get the community to trust us. There have been, I would say, probably past uh, circumstances and situations where something like this had been done and nothing came out of it. So the, the members of the community and people of color don't necessarily trust the system. They don't necessarily trust us. So we're going to have to build that trust and not assume that trust is going to be automatically given to us. So that probably would be our hardest part. Mm. I want to return to some specifics but uh, at the city level, but on the state level, Representative Hollins, uh, is there any legislation you're aware of uh, going to be pushed forward or any specifics on the, uh, the state level? Yes, um, we are. As you know and probably have heard that I am... Um, the um, minority um, caucus, or um, the Quad Caucus, as we call ourselves, and it's made up of legislators who are people of color, um, we have um, been meeting since all of this started. Um, as you may be aware, um, and Darlene was there also, when, the, um, when everything started breaking out, when the civil unrest began, um, we started calling each other and started talking about what what needs to be done. What do we need to do? And one of the things we did do is call for calm. But beyond that, we um, we have continued to meet um, to start talking about in our community changes that needed to happen. Um, and not only um, in police reform, but we've been looking at everything in in, in education, economics. I mean. With COVID nineteen happening, you know, we we've, we've been in conversation because we know that that has that has shined a light on the racial divide that, that's here in Utah and, and nationally. Um, but so we have been coming together and we have been looking at what type of legislation that we can encourage. And it's not just us; it's just not um, us. It's our Quad Caucus that's going to be running legislation. We have. Many of our colleagues that have reached out to us and that that's interested in and in how they can um, move the state forward in police reform, and so there's going to be a lot of different um, pieces of legislation that's going to be coming out around de-escalation, um, looking at um, use of force, um, looking at civilian um, review boards, um, and so we're going to be looking at a lot of that. Um, I haven't seen any of the written legislation yet. Um, it's still a work in progress, but I can tell you that I've had a lot of my colleagues who reached out to me and said, look, we're, we're interested in this and we want to know what can we do and, and how can we support. Mm. Uh, Darling McDonald, I want to direct this first to you. Um, the, the, uh, as uh, you're no doubt aware, uh, the group Decarcerate Utah posted a lengthy open letter to the, the mayor and city council of Salt Lake City. Um, and I'll just quote the opening paragraph here. What good is banning excessive use of force as a chokeholds when an officer still is allowed to employ these methods under his own judgment, their own judgment, and continually employ, exploit these loopholes with no accountability? What good are body cameras when officers are not held accountable in the murder of Patrick Harmon in 2017? And the group goes on to call for a uh, cut to the 
Salt Lake City's Police Department of $30 million, uh, which I think represents about 30, uh, 30%. They, they say this you know, isn't a total defund the police, but they, they, they say this is a good start. And uh, to divert uh, some of that money towards social programs like housing and mental health services. Uh, it, it, the work of your commission is just getting started. Uh, do you believe there will be uh, sentiment for, for de- even partial defunding of the police? Um, I cannot speak for other members of of the commission. I can only speak for myself in this regard and how I feel about this particular issue because, as I said, we have not gotten started with that particular work yet. So I don't know others' opinions about it. So I won't speak to for them or for the commission on that particular issue. I do believe that there is room for improvement in our social services, such as mental health services, education, jobs, training, how to de-escalate situations before law enforcement is needed or necessary. That should be, I believe, the focus. How can we minimize the need for interaction with law enforcement. And unfortunately, that oftentimes began with mental health um, episodes. Law enforcement is not trained to be social workers or mental health providers. They're not trained for that. They are law enforcement. They're supposed to their job is to provide safety for the community. So if we provide services, increase services for mental health, then that could cut down on our calls to the police or law enforcement for those services. But they shouldn't be called for that anyway. That should be a totally separate call that does not involve a, 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 law, a law enforcement officer with the means to um, to execute any type of, of police policing, I would say. So I do agree with what that paragraph you had mentioned, that more money should be diverted to be providing those services. But as on a commission, I will let the commission speak for themselves and commissioners speak for themselves on that. But I do agree that we need more resources for those social services so that law enforcement don't have to get involved. Yeah, it's it. I'll just quote another uh, sentence from the that open letter from Decarcerate Utah. It goes to this uh, particular issue. It says uh, the the group says it's no secret that uh, what we understand as crime is often a complex manifestation of social ills, poverty, houselessness, broken interpersonal relationships, etc. And uh, without addressing those ills, how can we foster safety? So that they're they're that's what they're saying. That their justification for calling for money to be diverted to to social uh, programs. Um, so, and, and yes. Can I add to that? I yes. want to just say that I, I absolutely agree that we need to look at what is happening in our community, and that if people don't have a way to legally participate in the economy because of their mm-hmm. background of being incarcerated, or um, they're going to participate illegally. You know, and I really hate to say that, but we have to look at 
um, individual programs and people who were formerly incarcerated and who are coming out of incarcerated and making sure that they're given opportunities to be able to support themselves. I remember having a conversation with a young man who said to me, I've tried and I keep trying and I keep trying to make a living. He had a criminal background, uh, background. He said, but people will not give, no one will give me a chance. And I keep filling out all of these job applications. Nobody will give me a chance or give me a foot in the door. Tell me what I can do. Tell me what I need to be doing. And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm seriously thinking about reverting back to my old habits because I have to support myself and I have to eat. We should not be placing people in that predicament. We need to look at how, have programs out there and look at how can we support individuals. If we said that we're going to send them into, you know, they commit a crime, we're going to have them do their time, but what are we going to do to support them to make sure that they are um, assimilate back into the community with, uh, with housing and, and, and with jobs so they can support themselves and they can support their families? Uh, Governor Herbert, uh, as you don't doubt know, has instituted uh, immediate bans on chokeholds within Utah's Department of Corrections and uh, Department of Public Safety, instituted mandatory implicit bias training for all state employees, and he elevated his Multicultural Affairs and Indian Affairs directors to, to, to directly report to him. Did, uh, Representative Hollins, uh, positive steps, I guess? Yes, they are. They, it, all of that is, is positive steps in the right direction and in the direction we need to um, be going. And I think it's the start of a conversation and we need to start looking at um, and continue to have this conversation, number one, but continue to start looking at how we can, again, like I said, look at implicit biases across the state in, in all elements of, of, of our lives. Mm. Darling McDonald, I would like to maybe have you talk a little bit about the implicit bias training. Uh, you know, I, I guess bringing uh, biases that we have uh, forward to consciousness, right? That a lot of it's unconscious. A lot of it is unconscious, and a lot of it, a lot of it comes also from our media and what type of media we we assume consume. I should say, how do we how do we look at each other and yeah, how do we look at each other? What do we assume about each other? One of the greatest examples is the elevator example, right? Um, when a white woman gets on an elevator and a black man gets on the elevator, she will clutch her purse tighter. Or you see a black man walking across, the, walking down the street, you cross the street. How do we look at people, the way that we view African-American women, the words and the adjectives that are used to describe African-American um, people and women, especially. This is something that I speak about a lot on social media. And you, we, when we um, think about and talk about, especially our legislators of color and how we describe them, if they are firebrands or anything that we use, and we associate those words with people of color, especially people of color that we don't associate with our white male legislators or even white female legislators. So these are things that I, I speak about and train on and have been trained on 
to look for when we talk about implicit biases and how we need to address that in in everything that we do. And that's going to be the work going forward, especially when we look into the systemic racism um, within our all of our institutions, whether it's from policing, financial, electoral, education, all of it. We have to address the implicit biases. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, I was reading uh, reading a column just a few days ago. The the columnist said something that's really struck me. Uh, he said that before we can uh, or we won't be successful in eliminating or reducing systemic racism in the police department until we are successful at the society level. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know what you think about that. Um, are you, uh, is that for me or Representative Powell? Uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll start with you, Darlene McDonald. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, when you change the institution, you change the people within the institution. We have to understand how policing in America came about, and that speaks directly to what Representative Holland has spoke about earlier when she said, know our history. We must learn our history. And when you learn the history of how policing in America started and its tie-in and relationship to slavery, then you learn exactly how and why policing is the way it is, especially the over-policing of communities of color. You don't have the same type of policing in communities of color as you have in white communities. Protect and serve the communities, and white people will have a positive view of policing when it's protect and serve. They'll walk the streets in the community to form those relationships, and you wouldn't think anything of it. That is not the same in communities of color. When when um, COVID hit, and, and not speaking about the disparity in the healthcare system, but one of the my, one of the biggest concerns that I have when we talk about whether or not we're going to penalize people for not wearing a mask, and I absolutely believe that everyone should wear a mask if they're outside, they're going to be engaged with groups of people. Put a mask on. Wear a mask. We're in the middle of a pandemic. It shouldn't be that difficult. But when we talk about making that mandatory and, and asserting penalties to that, that will look very differently in communities of color than it will for everyone else. And that has already been shown to us as to what happened in New York, whereas in Central Park you have policemen handing out masks to people that were in groups and, and sitting on the grass and having a good time. But in the communities of color, you see policemen roughing them up, tackling them to the ground and arresting them. This is the differences in how you police communities of color. And this is, speaks exactly to what we're talking about and why one of the biggest concerns I have when people say we need to have penalties for not wearing a mask. Yeah, it, it struck your example of the elevator. There's a direct line in there. I would, I think, <laughs> you're going to tell me, uh, you know, between the woman clutching her purse, that attitude, um, and the way police treat uh, different communities differently. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, Representative, yes. Representative Hollins, your your uh, comments on uh, on this. 
Uh, you know, I, I agree. It, it's a societal change and shift that needs to happen, that needs to occur. And Darlene gave some great examples of, of, of some um, biases that have occurred in our community, especially around wearing, you know, with wearing the mask during COVID-19. You know, we've had, um, when everything came out, you know, started happening with COVID-19 and we started discussing wearing masks, there were a lot of people in our community, particularly our black men, who were afraid to put masks on because of the perception of walking in a store with a mask on and how they're going to be perceived and whether the police is going to be called. And so that, that's been part of the discussion in our, in our communities. Um, and so that, that's a part of the, the, the biases that, that is occurring. Um, you know, right now we've all seen the film every single day of when the police have been used as a weapon um, towards particularly our black men. Well, black men and women, because I've seen a number of it at times that has happened to women also, um, by particularly white women, um, with no, with really no cause when they should not have been called into that situation. And we know that if the police are called into that situation with them calling and saying, Hey, you know, I'm feeling threatened. You know, those are, those are cold words. I'm feeling threatened. He's doing this to me and downright lying and using police officers as a weapon. And that's part of the best part of the bias, because we know that black men in particular are perceived as a threat. They're perceived as, as a threat. You know, there have been situations my husband has gone into and he had said, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, we had a friend of ours who um, a white male who was locked out of his home. And my husband and I went over to help him, you know, um, and my husband refused to get out of the car. And he said, because he let me go get out of the car and help, he said, because I don't want his neighbors calling the police if they see me standing there and thinking that something else is going on. These are a part of our realities every single day. We have to move and operate in a very in a heightened awareness that I think America don't understand, will never understand. When you get home at the end of the day, you're tired from working. When we get home at the end of the day, we're tired from having to maneuver through racism every day. It's very, very, very tiresome. And I think part of that needs to be in the conversation and there needs to be an understanding around that. We teach our kids a whole lot different. I had to teach my daughters what to do when you're stopped by the police. You keep your hands on the wheel, and, and Darlene could tell you she's had these conversations with her kids. Keep your hands on the wheel. Don't make any sudden moves. Narrate every single thing that's going to happen. Let them know I'm going to reach to the right to get my purse. My, my ideas in my purse, you have, and these are things that we have to teach our kids. When you go into a grocery store or a store, do not leave without having a receipt and a bag because you don't want to be perceived as stealing from the store. You know, it, it, and, and it's very, very tiresome. So there needs to be an understanding and there needs to be an entire shift in this community around racism and bias. Uh, it occurs to me that, uh, you know, I guess part of the 
part of what's helped move awareness forward is the age of cell phones, right? And and that you mm-hmm. you you can tell your experience till you're blue in the face, and uh, <laughs> it's not going to be accepted. But yeah. but if you actually can show it on video, maybe people pick that up and understand. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I I agree with that on one level. I mean, we saw the video of Rodney King, and it didn't change anything. Mm, yeah, that's right. We we yes. I mean, we, we the prosecutors in the Ahmad Armory case, they had the video. They had video them them shooting him as he was jogging. So it's not necessarily just having it on video. We have many videos of many of these injustices. There also must be accountability as well. Mm-hmm. And not just the video. The videos are helpful. It is awakening the consciousness, yes, and allowing people to see what is happening, more people to see what is happening. But we must also have accountability as well. Hmm. How, how do we get to accountability? That comes back to police reform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what we talked about here. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, is that is that citizen review boards? Is it uh, you know we we've we've had body cams that seems to have mm-hmm. worked some and, and not worked in other cases. Um, what are some other things we can do? You, one of the things. Well, I'm reading a book. We we talked about this is a time where lots of people are reading books, right? Right. And. <laughs> and I'm reading a book uh, called Politics in Black, and it's a conversation with many leaders in the African-American community, entertainment, political, journalists, uh, across broad spectrum um, of leaders, speaking to these issues. And one of the things that they spoke about is, you know, we we've have body cams. Um, and it hasn't changed anything, and these things are still happening. I believe that we really should really look at, when it comes back to accountability and should the police be investigating themselves, there are lots of things that are going to be looked at when it comes to not necessarily training. Training is really isn't an issue either, but who are we hiring? To be police officers, taking a look at that, I think that's something that should be looked at, and the type of education that they have, and should that be a requirement? Should police officers have a four-year college degree? What type of certification? Should they be certified? There are lots of things that we, we need to look at as we move forward in how we're going to resolve this issue. Because, as you said... We have body cams, and, and it, it's not solving the problem. Chokeholds is banned in many, many cities, and it still happens. So we need to look beyond training, body cams, chokeholds, and just look at how we can actually get to solutions. And also, can I add to that? Yes. Voting. We have got yes. to get out and vote. Because we elect the mayors who, who hire the police chiefs who have oversight of this. And we need to look at 
who we're voting for and whether they reflect our values and what are their understanding is of racism and biases and how do they what is their plan moving forward to address that in their administration um, and so that is one of the key pieces that I keep emphasizing on we have got to get out and we've got to vote mm. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our last segment on this important topic, um, systemic racism and policing. Uh, we're talking with Representative Sandra Hollins and with Darling McDonald, who is chairwoman of the Utah Black Roundtable and member of the new- newly created Salt Lake City Commission for Racial Equity and Policing. More following this. Support for the UPR-produced podcast, Debunked, is made possible by the Utah Division of Substance Abuse and Mental Health, providing substance use disorder, mental health, and suicide prevention resources throughout Utah. Information at dsamh.utah.com. As part of Project Resilience, Utah Public Radio and the USU Center for Persons with Disabilities presents the Mental Health and Developmental Disability National Training Center's Crossroads podcast. In Episode 8, Improving Access to Mental Health Services for Young Adults with Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities and Mental Health Needs. Find this and other episodes by going to our website, upr.org, and linking to our Project Resilience programming. Hi, this is Don Gomes in Torrey. I listen to Utah Public Radio at 94.5. Torrey may be far from some areas of Utah, but Utah Public Radio keeps us in touch with a window on the world. It's like we're right next door. You're listening to Access U-Time. Tom Williams, uh, following the death of uh, George Floyd uh, at the hands of police in uh, Minneapolis in May, protests across the nation have demanded uh, police reform and an end to systemic racism and policing. We're talking about that as it relates to uh, Utah. And we're talking with Representative Sandra Hollins and with Darlene McDonald, who's a member of the newly created Salt Lake City Commission for Racial Equity in uh, Policing. Uh, we just have a few minutes left in the conversation. I want to make reference to... Um, a uh, Department of Public Safety has issued uh, 19 police reform topics for further discussion. And uh, under, I won't go through all these, uh, but this apparently uh, came out of discussions with the Martin Luther King and Multicultural Commissions. Um, so such things as transparency to officer conduct, ban on chokeholds, use of force, uh, transparency, uh, citizen review boards, uh, body cams, uh, recruiting and retaining diversity, implicit bias training. Uh, one of the things listed here, uh, demilitarization of the police. Uh, Darlene McDonald, is that something yeah. you're going to look at uh, in the commission, do you think? Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. One hundred, one thousand percent. Yes. Are we at war with the community? Is the police at war with the community it is sworn to protect and serve? Our local police department should not look like they're about to enter the Iraqi war zone. It it, it just shouldn't happen. So, yes, a demilitarization of our local police force, an absolute positive must, However millions of dollars that they are spending on tank and tactical equipment should be diverted to mental health services, education, after-school programs. Let's look at Job Corps again. I mean, there are a number of things that we could do with those, with those funds. So, yes, absolutely. 
Representative Hollins, you, uh, demilitarization of police, that's something you're going to be looking at on the state level, do you think? Um, I don't know if anyone has a bill file open on demilitarization of police, but I have to say that I do agree with um, Darlene and everything that she has said. Um, you know, we need to look at funding more programs that's um, that's going in mental health and and and, uh, and economic development within these communities within my community that I that I live in and, and that I and that I serve and so um, I, I totally agree with her. We just have about uh, two or three minutes left. I want to uh, make sure we talk about uh, the bill that you ran, Representative Hollins. I think it passed, and this will be on the mm-hmm. the ballot, right? Constitutional uh, amendment to remove uh, slavery from the Utah Constitution. I, I think uh, some people didn't probably didn't know that slavery was in the Utah Constitution. Yes, a lot of people were surprised to find that out. Um, I had been watching um, Colorado do the exact same thing and remove it from their constitution, and um, I was quite surprised after celebrating theirs passing to find out that we had it in our constitution um, with a phone call from somebody from the media who, who informed me of that. And so when she asked me, well, what are we going to do about it, I said, well, we need to take it out. We, it's time for it to be removed. Um, this should not have ever been placed in the Utah Constitution. Um, the Utah Constitution was written in 1895, and the Emancipation Proclamation passed in 1863. And I suspect that that this was placed. Well, let me backtrack. People are not aware that it is in the United States Constitution, um, the Thirteenth Amendment. It, I would encourage any everyone to watch um, Ava DuVernay's. Um, documentary 13th which talks about this so and it was placed there because of economics and because um, when slavery ended there was a panic among um, economic community as how we're going to continue with this free labor and so this was placed in as a way to arrest individuals in particularly former slaves and get them back into a form of slavery um, so that they can continue working. So, yes, I ran a bill saying let's take it out of Utah Constitution. Yes, it's going to be on the ballot um, come November, and I'm asking for everyone to please vote in favor of taking this out of our Constitution. It, it no longer reflects our values. Mm. So that'll be on the ballot uh, for November. Yeah. Um, we just have a, about one minute, a little less than one minute. I'll give you the last word, Darlene McDonald. What, what's the next steps for the commission? The next steps for the commission is once to start meeting, and once we start meeting with the purpose of bringing about reform, and those meetings will be open to the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we do plan on having transparency so that the community will know what we're doing and, and get their buy-in as well. They will be able to comment. We're also forming a youth um, subcommittee as well, because we have some fabulous youth as members of our community that are pretty much right there on the front line, and they are, by large, mostly impacted by what's happening with the, um, with the police and police brutality. So we have formed a youth subcommittee as well.
All right, we'll uh, we'll look with great interest to see what uh, happens both on the state and uh, the uh, Salt Lake City level. Uh, we have been speaking with Representative Sandra Hollins, Democrat from uh, Salt Lake City. Representative Hollins, thank you so much. Okay, thank you for having us. Thank you. Uh, and Darlick McDonald, chair, uh, Chairwoman of the Utah Black Roundtable, member of the newly created uh, Salt Lake City Commission for Racial Equity and Policing. We appreciate you joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And uh, we will uh, have a special program in place of Behind the Headlines tomorrow. And, of course, Access Utah returns on Monday. Thanks for listening today. This is Debbie Andrew. As a service to you, Utah Public Radio is providing on-air and online resources for ways you can take advantage of social distance recreating in your hometown. Representatives from Davis, Garfield, Cache, and other tourism areas are sharing ideas about unique hiking trails, scenic drives, and places to grab an on-the-go bite to eat. If you missed the message here, you can always get more information on our Project Resilience webpage. Find the link online at upr.org. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org. Thank you.